Freedom Pact, we are extremely excited today to bring you an interview with the number one international best-selling author of the book The Tattooist of Auschwitz. It's Heather Morris. Heather's here to talk about the book, to talk about her writing tips, and really to talk about how somebody who's never written a book before on their debut has managed to become the international best-selling book and write a piece that has really taken on a world of its own and become a worldwide phenomenon. So widely renowned and top in charts in every bookstore you go into. You really can't get away from this book. The Tattooist of Auschwitz is based on a true story, the true story of Lale Sokolov that Heather spent many years interviewing to make this book as authentic as possible. Not only is this book a beautiful story, but there are so many lessons we can learn from it. Even if for some reason you haven't read this book yet, I promise you this podcast will be well worth listening to because the stories and lessons we can take away from this are going to be so impactful and lessons that you can implement into your life. And we're going to dive into those with Heather herself. So without any further ado, Heather Morris, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Oh, thank you so much. It's lovely to be chatting to you. That's wonderful. Uh, Heather, could you please um, just explain the extraordinary events that have led to you writing a book which is now so widely revered all all around the world? It's incredible. Well, the crazy thing is that uh, this book existed as a screenplay for about 10 years before it got turned into the book. And uh, it was just my stubbornness, I think, because I only ever saw this being played out on a screen. I learned how to write screenplays. I studied it both here and in America, and uh, that was the medium I liked to write. And uh, yeah, I'm, I kick myself now for having been so stubborn and hanging on to that for so long. And it just took a visit to my brother and sister-in-law in San Diego a few years back for me to bemoan the fact that those people 100 miles up the road in Hollywood didn't know a good story when they saw it. That my sister-in-law leant over the table at me and said, oh, for goodness sake, just write the thing as a book and get on with it. <laughs> so how did uh, the first interactions come with you um, becoming to meet Lully Sokolov? Yeah, look, one of those times in life, and and here's a lesson for everyone who is listening. Don't say no to any invite unless you really have to. I'd said no to catching up with a friend several times because I was busy, and it was approaching Christmas time. And finally, I sort of said, yeah, okay, okay, let's get together and have a cup of coffee. Now, over that cup of coffee, she just casually said to me, oh, by the way, I have a friend whose mother's just died. And I went, no, that's sad. She said, yeah. She said, listen, his um, father has asked him to find somebody he can tell a story to. But he wants somebody who's not Jewish. Do you want to meet him? But she knew I wasn't Jewish. And she was. And, of course, uh, Lali's son was. And I went, yes, okay. So yes to a cup of coffee and then yes to meeting Lali. Wow. I mean... What I what I what I was wondering about about the writing process is transferring somebody else's story, their feelings, their emotions, their experiences, 
onto a piece of, onto a piece of paper that must come with a lot of pressure as it is and i imagine doing so with a story like lale's which is undoubtedly would have historical connotations and a worldwide impact that must have had you know a lot of weight to carry did you deal with any pressure when transferring this story onto paper oh absolutely uh, the responsibility to to do Lali's story right by him was the biggest responsibility that I took on. I always knew that the story, the, the, the biggest story of the Holocaust was something that, of course, I would research and, and that uh, we had professional researchers also look into for us. But my primary goal was I had to honour this man's story and tell it the way he remembered it. And... Uh, I was so lucky and privileged to meet so many other survivors of the Holocaust here in Melbourne and in Australia overall. Outside of Israel, I think we got the largest number of Holocaust survivors came to Australia. Now, while sadly, there are very few of them left, but um, 12 or 13 years ago, there were a lot more here in Melbourne and, and meeting them and having them verify them, the people who were there with him, his story, well, that then to me was, well, this is a story I'm telling. But of course, I had the responsibility of making sure the facts, and when I talk about facts, I'm talking about the facts of the time and the place and who these people are. They also had to marry together. And so I was dealing with history and memory and trying to make sure that those two, as much as possible, danced in step. So interesting. And I want to go back to a point which you said um, in your first, to the first question, where um, about the non-Jewish origin. And yeah. something that I found fascinating about that was, was Lully being insistent that he would only retell this story to someone of a non-Jewish origin. What do you think the reason for that was? He was actually very clear on that, and the very day, first day I met him, he made uh, sure that, well, actually, he quizzed me about how much I knew about Judaism and the Holocaust, and was quite embarrassed to have to admit that um, my small-town New Zealand education hadn't really taught me very much, uh, and just the bit I'd read on my own. But to him, having somebody who had no family connection or history or baggage was paramount. Mm. He wanted his story told, and you know what? I've met many, many people, you know, Jewish people who do have family or who are connected to the Holocaust in some way. And uh, they've all actually nodded their heads and gone, yeah, Lully was a wise man. <laughs> um, they know that 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 history for them would be very, very difficult to write without their own emotion. So what were your actual interactions like? Did you visit his house? Did you did he visit yours? What was the, the logistical side of it? Look, initially I would go and visit him and, um, and I was going two to three times a week for three or four months because when I met Lali, of course, Gita had just died and all he wanted to do was join her. So for him, he was grief-stricken. He would just say to me, even after day two, have you finished my book yet? <laughs> and so I was so concerned that, um, yeah, look, this this man, he, he was going to do what he said he wanted to do, which was join Gita. He could not live without her. So two or three times a week, and I went and sat in his lounge room or at his dining table with him, and 
drank his very, very bad coffee. He never did learn how to make coffee properly. <laughs> and um, just let him talk. I never took any recording material. Just let him talk. And uh, I knew I was getting snippets of what was going to be an amazing story, and I never knew what I was going to do with it. Uh, that part was all wonderful to hear. I was so privileged to be sitting with living history and to me, if I could help him in any way, even if it was just listen to him, that was enough for me initially. But then I thought, I'm, if he's really going to trust me with his story, then he has to get to know me, not just this person sitting in the lounge room with him. And so I brought him home and I introduced him to my family because what better way to get to know somebody than to know their background. And uh, he immediately started flirting with my 18-year-old daughter at the time. <laughs> and, uh, so I started seeing a bit of the old lully coming back. And uh, my husband and two sons sort of immediately fell under his spell. Then all of a sudden, one day it was, how about we go out for coffee? And we started then going out. I became his date. I became as he could introduce me to his friends as his girlfriend. And, um, and the relationship was then about friendship and his story and my recording. It was almost secondary. Mm. You, you mentioned that you, you know, were careful not to take any recording equipment or anything. Was it important for you to try and make these conversations as human as possible? Absolutely. I didn't want to be seen to be interviewing him. In fact, I never used that word. It was uh, actually only until the book came out and somebody said to me one day, very early on, or how often or how long did you interview him for? And I was quite taken back because that was the word that just never gelled with me. And I went, well, actually, I never interviewed him. It's not the way it was. I, I sat and talked to him. Well, he did the talking. He was a great talker once you got him going. But, um, yeah, look, it was absolutely because maybe in my role working in the social work department of a big hospital, we're talking with people... In times of tragedy and trauma, that's the only time people ask to see a social worker. Uh, it, it absolutely gave me that uh, background to know that you want people to trust you and to open up to you. Just shut up and listen. Wow. Was there a process that, that Lully uh, decided that you were the right, uh, the right person to retell his story? Because I heard you say a beautiful story about his dog and that was when he decided that, that you were the one. Yeah, he, look, he had these crazy two dogs. That they used to always um, amuse me greatly because one of them was so big, about the size of a small horse, and um, and the other one was smaller than my cat. And, and he just adored his dogs. He lived with his two dogs. He's still living independently in his own apartment right up until the day he died. And, uh, yeah, they always were with us, and they would come and he'd, bring a tennis ball and he'd throw it over his shoulder and they'd chase after it and send furniture flying and skid on the carpet or the rugs and it was it was about a good four or five months into our friendship that Tootsie the big one she came up with the ball and Lally just automatically reached down to take it and she growled at him and he gave her a little bit of a cuff over the ear and told her she was a naughty naughty Tootsie give me the ball she growled at him again and then Tootsie turned around, and it was interesting. I remember it so vividly how she did come to him, and she turned her head to him with the ball. 
Then she turned around and she put her head on my knee. She could do that. That's how big she was. And I reached down and took the tennis ball out of her mouth and threw it over my shoulder. And that was the moment that Lolly kind of looked at me and nodded and went, Mom, my doggies like you. I like you. You can tell my story. Oh. And it was, it was a watershed moment for him. And the change in him, both physically and emotionally, at that point was dramatic. Because, mm. yes, I had been getting his story factually and almost clinically. And now I started getting it emotionally. And, and really thank heavens that, that the dog did turn his head because the way the book is is articulated is just so, so beautiful. It's a real... It yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's that's amazing. The, that's, the other lesson, that's the other lesson in this, folks. Um, get on with the pets. <laughs> mm, yeah, exactly, yeah. Something I would like to talk about is, is um, that when I was doing the research for this interview, I looked into case studies and journals of Holocaust survivors and a quote which I read particularly caught my eye and the quote goes as follows this is from the American Journal of General Psychiatry and the quote is in regards to this in regards to survivors there are those that stayed alive and there are those rare few that came back to life these are the ones that managed to avoid hopelessness and pursue meaning they never let the Nazis take the most, the thing most precious, their spirit. And the impression that I have from the book and from exactly what you've said is that Lully was definitely in the latter and, and his soul really managed to avoid that pitfall of meaninglessness. From your experience of Lully, what do you think it was about him that, that allowed him to find that meaning in times of the worst despair really in human history? I think he brought a lot of it with him. He was a man who, prior to uh, being imprisoned, back in Bratislava where he lived in his mid-twenties, he was a playboy. He, he was a man about town. He knew who he was in the scheme of things and who he intended to be. And that was somebody that could live the best life he could uh, with the best friends, devotion of his family, and he had his path charted out. And so he wasn't letting anything get in the way of his ultimate goal, which was to have the best life he could. And um, yeah, and so he brought that with him, I'm sure of it. Now, of course, he got beaten down many times. But that hope that he never, ever lost, that he would leave that place. Now, and Agita didn't share that. But to him, we will walk out of here. There was just no... He wouldn't think of any other way. So he, he was one of those people that um, you just spoke about. Um, and uh, aren't we glad that he was? Because not only did it give us this incredible story all these decades later, but it enabled him to do what he did in that camp. You, you guys, I haven't written probably less than a third of what he's told me. Mostly because so much of it I didn't want to layer it too much with the horror that he had did actually witness and experience. But there were so many other incidents that when I wrote the book, I never had clarification or a second piece of evidence about and I wouldn't put them in. And the bug of it is that um, people now, of course, approach me from many, many countries in the world and told me stories that uh, a family member of theirs has got to share about Lully. 
and I could write another uh, another edition really easily. Well, please do. <laughs> please do. <laughs> we we will we will definitely um, be purchasing that. Um, it's 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 very interesting what you say, but and it really makes me. Uh, it reminds me of in the book where Lolly talks about this idea that survival was a form of heroism. Did he ever say, as in, what he attributed his survival to? Absolutely. He never even had to think about that. And you know what? He wasn't the only one who used this phrase to describe why they survived. Not how, why they survived. And he would say it, I was just lucky, lucky, lucky. And that's the same word that nearly every survivor I met also used. Wow. You had to have a degree of luck. You, because you had no way of influencing that person you stood in front of when you arrived when he would flick his wrist to the left or to the right and that was the moment that your fate was decided in those camps it's 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 yeah it's interesting you say that and and i wonder if gita said the same because in the book it seems as if she almost borders on the side of, of superstitious in regards to, say, the four-leaf clovers and whatnot, giving them to the guards. Yeah. Is that something which was a factor? Oh, absolutely. Look, the girls were so different in their approach. And, you know, I'm so lucky that one of those survivors, in fact, the one with whom the, the girl Dana in my book... Uh, is actually modelled on, or more than modelled on, it is actually her. She, in fact, is still alive here in Sydney, in Australia. She's 95, and her name is actually Lottie. And um, Lottie, I see every chance I get when I'm in Sydney. And she has been the person who has been able to tell me not only about her survival, but she was with Geeta in the camp and what life was like for the girls and yes they had a totally different experience in many ways and they did I suppose it's maybe it's a female thing but I don't want to go onto it too much because I'll get into trouble if I start saying yeah we get away with things by battering our eyelids but uh, for them it was find a four-leaf clover and uh, hand it to a guard as he's about to belt you over the head with his rifle Uh, yes they, they found other ways to try and well, survive on a daily basis. Mm. Actually, hourly basis in that place. Yeah, I was <clears throat> I was reading online, and a lot of the questions that um, a lot of the online book clubs and things like that I saw had was that obviously Lale can attribute a lot of his survival and benefits to obviously picking up um, jobs that give him a sort of position of privilege. Um, obviously, that's, but that wasn't the case for the girls so much. So a lot of people were wondering um, how they managed to survive um, not having these opportunities. Look, look, the reality is that if you're a female, you survived if you were actually, in some ways, attractive. Mm. The girls who got to work in the Canada, who got to work inside and working inside, there you were, you were lucky again, you could survive if you went to work inside a building each day, not in the elements. And they were often chosen because they would be young and relatively attractive. Uh, Isn't it crazy that a bunch of SS people whose role in life was to exterminate you would still see that, oh, you're pretty, let's keep you alive a little bit longer. 
because that was a determining factor in them being sent to work in the administration building or the Canada, which was the biggest employer that the buildings called the Canada uh, of, of the girls. So, um, yeah, but look, and I guess, yeah, I actually describe Lully, but in, in the nicest possible meaning of the word, as an opportunist. Mm. He saw his opportunities and he took them. And, and that continued, by the way, throughout his whole life. That's how he uh, yeah, ran his businesses and uh, had the success he did here in Australia and, and when he was back in Bratislava. So he was. That, that's the reality of it. And then by being that, he got this position. And yes, he was a privileged prisoner. He never denied that. But the best thing about the privileges that he had wasn't necessarily the fact that he got extra food, which not only sustained him, but which he could share, but it gave him freedom of movement. And that was rare. But even other privileged prisoners still only had that privilege as far as wherever they went to work. With Lully, his work was everywhere. So nobody challenged him. He was the Tetevera. He carried the bag. He had the tools with him. So interesting. And and I think back to um, that quote which we talked about earlier from that study where it said, some people lived and others came back to life. And I just wonder, what was Lully's attitude? What was his aura? What was the sort of impression that he had after you know, after surviving Auschwitz, did he have sort of um, like a love for life type thing or, or did did he carry that burden around with him? Not obviously. Mm. Um, it was not obvious to me uh, except when he started really, really unburdening with me. And uh, so, no, he actually didn't. And he told me that he and Gita, he said, we made a pact, he said, when we were together, when we first got back together, that the only way we could honour all those people who didn't survive, and it included their family, was to have the best life they could, that the no good could come of them then uh, not trying to have the best life they could, seeing so many people, millions had been denied it, and they'd seen those millions. And so that's what they tried to do. Now, I mentioned I'd met many other survivors, and... It was very clear to me on first meeting many, many of them, they had not been so successful in moving on, that they they carried that trauma with them. And now I meet their children, and in some cases their grandchildren, and I hear now that first-hand account of being brought up by a survivor and the effect that that had on on the raising of their children and I think there's lots of studies done on that too in terms of not talking to them and I totally get that why would you want to look your child in the eye and tell them of the horrors that you'd survived but they carried it with them all the same uh, and, and I, the, the, the parts that I'm actually trying to read further about is that the notion that trauma of that kind of level how it actually can be passed on to your children through DNA there's uh, some very interesting people I've met as the survivors of the children and grandchildren. Mm. Yeah. That's a whole new story. Yeah, exactly. Uh, something I was thinking about when I read the book, and this idea that I just couldn't shake from my mind, where uh, was I was I was wondering 
um, about the factors really that led to Lully surviving, and obviously there was the 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 skills of obviously being able to speak a number of languages, yeah. but then but then there was obviously street smarts involved. He was very courageous, and I also wonder about meeting Gita and just how much of a motivating factor she was, you know, she was for him. And I couldn't help but ask myself if he hadn't met her and there wasn't that happenstance, would he have been so motivated to live? What do you think yeah, about that? Yeah, that's a, a great question because they met very early on. They went into Auschwitz in April. Gita actually went in about 10 days before him in April 1942, and then they met in July 1942. So during weather, which was nicer, which they hadn't been truly tested in terms of uh, surviving the elements... And, um, yeah, for, for my playboy, my man about town, my loveman legum character, to, to look in the eyes of a young girl dressed in rags with a head shaven and unbathed and then tell me 60 years later, I knew in that second I would never love another. It was a huge factor for him. Absolutely. Another thing um, I found online uh, amongst the forums and, and fan discussions is um, they talk a lot about how obviously how deep the love as you just mentioned was and a lot of people questioned whether in a different circumstance in everyday life would Lale have felt the same love for um, for Gita as he did as they met in that circumstance specifically you know possibly not because here's the thing about uh, the two of them that differs while they were both from a small town in Slovakia, um, not too far apart from each other, but back then, uh, sort of 30 or 40 miles was considered probably a long way, Lully had moved to Bratislava. He'd gone to the capital. He'd studied. He'd worked. He had a position of um, a job that, yeah, a senior position. Gita was still a small town girl. And so the chances of their meeting were probably not that great. And also the fact that Lully had free admitted to me that he had, was attracted to the women in Bratislava that, quote, came from good families and um, he has lived a very good lifestyle. So, yeah, as I say, he was, he was a bit of a man about town and that had been who he had been attracted to, a, females similar so um, no I suspect if it hadn't been for that they their paths would never have crossed and he possibly would not have looked maybe That's, I might be being a bit harsh here but um, it wasn't females that he was used to um, with sweet little country girls if you could break down the lessons from say the book and Lully's life your experience with him what do you think the most prominent lessons or principles that you think that us, our audience, could take that would be that that really are worth sharing? Yeah, I initially, when I was writing it, I kept thinking it's all about the love. It's all about the love of people. Um, and, and then, it was, of course, it was about family. And when I say family, he used to call the people in the camp their family. We had to become a family ourselves. Our families were taken from us. But then I started, of course, picking up from him and others that I was meeting how much that notion of hope played in their survival. 
And since the book has come out, and from the many, many, many people, and I'm, I'm talking thousands, it's just so humbling, who have written to me, they also are saying, you've given me hope. Lali has given me hope that my life right now, something bad has happened to me and I'm not having a good patch here. And um, I'm going to take hope that Lali and Geeta and so many others survived that I can get through what I'm going through. You know, one of those things played out when I'm, I was in London late last year because I had been contacted by a prison south of London to say that uh, a little book club in this prison, half a dozen men had read my book and had been greatly affected by it. And one of the prison authorities wrote to me to tell me this and asked me would I write them a letter and just saying how much I appreciate hearing from them. And instead I went and visited them and I sat for three hours in a room with 100 very naughty boys. And again, it came out, they kept saying, yeah, Lully has given us hope that he survived a prison way, way worse than what we have. But we can get out of here and we have now have got hope. We too can actually have a, a good life and we can do the right thing. And that was a wow, smack you around the head moment for me this book about this man who would never ever want to be anyone to think of him as being a hero because he certainly never saw himself as that just somebody he said who did what he had to do it under the circumstances but here I was and uh, sitting with these men and that hope by the way just didn't extend to that hundred I was with I was told it went out into the general prison population of which was something of like 1500 mm. that's pretty cool yeah Something that, that I actually found amazing as well, and something that I think probably paid an enormous factor was Lully's social and people skills. Because just as an... ...to him to uh, keep on his side. And yes, a relationship between a prisoner and an SS guard, yeah, not common. But you know what, I've heard of other people and I've met other survivors who also said, oh, yeah, there was this guard that, that, that I saw a lot of that was where I worked. Uh, and, um, yeah, we got to talking. You mentioned about the impact of the book having and what that means to you. And I decided, well, it actually came about long before I uh, inquired about uh, this interview. I was, I just, I actually tweeted about the book when I first read it and I said, um, you know, I... No worries. I said that I, you know, I thoroughly recommend this book to everyone, and it was, in my opinion, the best book I've read in quite a long time. And I noticed a lot of people, especially you know, young younger people, talking about how how much they loved the book and how it was such a gripping and easy read for them. And what I found about the book is that people say that it's one of the rare books that they could read in maybe one or two days because you know, it, it captures their emotions that much. And I even decided to look up the hashtag Heather Morris on, on Instagram and Twitter. And what I found was a lot of the younger generation were, you know, extremely touched by this book. And a lot of people were saying that, you know, it is actually opening their eyes to, to reading more. Is, you know, is, is all that, does that bring you a lot of meaning and is that what's important to you? Absolutely, you know, it actually brings me the most meaning. And hey, listen, thanks for the heads up about Twitter and Instagram. I don't have those um, social media aspects in my life. Oh, so I had no idea. Thanks for that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, um, the book's really popular. I mean, I looked on Instagram and there are thousands of people just taking pictures of their book, you know, by the fireplace, uh, by 
it's beautiful yeah and look and you're quite right and I've said to my publishers all along right from the get go well there was two things about um, making the book readable and basically that came about because I didn't know what I was doing <laughs> and um, yeah, I'd never written a book I never thought I could and my publishers of course said oh look it's a memoir and I went okay so I went to memoir school well it lasted one day and I went no nah, I don't like that I'm not going to write it like that and to me, the only way I could write it was to sit down and, um, well, I was actually adapting my screenplay, let's face it, but I had Lully leaning over my shoulder yelling at me the whole time, that's not what I said, write it like that. <laughs> and so because it was told to me in very simple language by an 87, 88, 89-year-old man, I thought, well, I'm going to just keep it simple, tell a story, because um, I didn't know any other way. And uh, thankfully, my wonderful, amazing, fantastic publishers read it and went, yep, you still don't know what you're doing. You're flipping from the first person to the third person and back to the first again in one sentence. But um, we, we can help you with uh, correcting that and, and let me run with telling the story the way I wanted to. Now, I'm so delighted that in a couple of months' time, a YA edition of the book, a young adult edition, is coming out in both the UK and Australia. Now the book, there's no change to it. The content of the book is the same. We've changed the cover, but what we've also put in there is in the front uh, several pages of, by several, I mean about half a dozen, and it's a, another bit of a story from me, just a little bit more detail of how I got the story mm. and the, the impact of my getting the story. There's a Q&A for both students and teachers to be able to consider aspects of the book when reading and um, a little timeline very short timeline uh, dot point that was given to us by a lecturer in holocaust studies here in australia just so that the readers and once again we're aiming at those young adult readers here is some brief dot points of uh, the holocaust facts mm. and um, nothing too arduous there and uh, i'm delighted to think that once again younger people will be able to pick this up and I've heard from people as young as nine who have read it not sure I'd give it to a nine-year-old but um I've heard from nine-year-old 11-year-old 13 14-year-olds so yeah they're picking it up on their own it's brilliant it's beautiful and they're telling me I now know a little bit about the holocaust that I never knew before and that's a great thing mm. something I'd love to go back to what you just said earlier about the writing process because this obviously is this is a personal development podcast and a question which we often get asked a lot is about writer's block you know yep. heather morris and marquee lights your books are everywhere <laughs> we wonder if you could give our audience any advice on dealing with writer's block because you would undoubtedly have faced some plateaus in writing the book along the way well, not in writing the book, okay, because as I said, I was adapting a screenplay that I'd written. Of course. Yeah. So I, I had this perfectly, well, not perfectly, but very well constructed or structured and drafted screenplay because I had been optioned by a production company in Australia and I'd been working on it with producers and directors. So that aspect of actually writing the book was I just sat down and, and I knocked the bugger off in a month sitting up in a house in Big Bear in California in the middle of winter. Um but in terms of writing the screenplay, yes, how to tell it, 
uh, was the biggest difficulty for me, even writing the screenplay. And that came about because it was a matter of well, whose point of view, of course, and that whole notion of how much do I keep in of what I know and how much do I leave out? And so it wasn't a writer's block for me per se. It was choosing what to leave out and uh, and how to pace the story. And it was all about getting that, that arc, which you learn when you learn screenwriting, that you have got to constantly change your emotional arc. You cannot keep writing horrific things page after page because the reader or in the case of a film, the viewer will switch off. You've got to change up the emotion. The emotion. And, um, and so that was, I think, in some ways, great background for me writing this, because I'm dealing with a pretty emotional subject here. And so much of it was not of the good emotions. Uh, so in terms of actual writer's block, it was not a block, but it was a telling the story the best way. Now, I think that comes about when you're writing stories based on true events and true people. If I was writing purely fiction and having to create it all in my head, yeah, I'm not that good. Well, when it comes to books like this, people obviously only see the end product and, and they often don't see what goes into producing a piece like this. Could you recall you know, what that process was like, you know, putting pen to paper and how many hours you were putting into it, what your typical day was like, what times of day you were writing, any rituals you had, and what sort of toll it was taking on your on your daily life throughout that process? Yeah, look, initially, of course, I worked full-time up until about 15 months ago, both the screenplays and the many, many drafts of it, many, and, um, and the, the book too, once again, several drafts, and they were having to be done while I was working a full-time job in a very, very large, busy hospital. But thankfully, um, I'm a bit like Lily in some ways that, that uh, I used to sit with him too, very easily distracted. And I worked out the best way I could write was at night, in the dark, with no distractions. The only distraction I allowed myself was my cat. <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah, I was having to uh, come home and I'd start work at about nine o'clock at night and uh, work through till about two or three in the morning and then stagger up to work. But when it came to actually writing the book from the, the screenplay, that's when, as I say, I went to uh, my brother and sister-in-law have a house up in this mountain in California, and I borrowed it for a month. And by myself, I needed to be alone. I do have this amazing man I've been married to for 40-plus years, and he tries to be helpful, but for him being helpful is to poke his head in my office door every half hour and offer me a cup of tea. <laughs> or make me lunch or hang my washing out and uh, that doesn't work for me <laughs> I, I cannot have distractions and right now it's pitch black out here still in Melbourne and uh, yeah it would be perfect writing time for me right now so I live in a forest and there's too many birds and, and critters and I literally do have things like wombats and wallabies and kangaroos coming and popping on my back lawn so, uh, no distractions yeah. for me. So do you find that that's the best uh, sort of setting where there's, it's just you, your thoughts, the pen, the paper, the typewriter, just complete yeah. type silence, that's it, is it? Yeah, absolutely, has to be. I, I've seen people, and, um, and a friend I have here too, she 
uh, has written uh, three or four books. She goes to a cafe. She takes a laptop and goes down to her local cafe and she sits there surrounded by all the noise of um, diners and people coming in for coffee and will sit there for three or four hours every day. And, oh, I just couldn't imagine doing that. I'd be wanting to chat to everybody and work out, oh, he's having a double cafe latte today, not a, you know, whatever. So I guess that, uh, yes, whatever works for you. And that finding what works for you is the, the first thing you've got to uh, come to. But, yeah, on my own. And is that white writing process, that's something you're going through right now, isn't it? Aren't, are you working on a story that uh, readers of The Tattooist of Auschwitz may be familiar with? Yeah, they are. And thank you, my publishers, thank you for asking this question. Um, and, and, yes, I am. And once again, uh, very late nights I'm having because life here in Melbourne gets in the way. Though I am sort of leaving home next Monday for a week and got myself a B&B up in the country in Victoria once again to get away from um, that person who keeps wanting to make me cups of tea. Uh, but, um, yes, Silker's Journey, it's been called. And uh, it became really obvious to me years and years ago when I was with Lully and uh, he just one day... He would just throw things at you. He never finished a sentence, by the way. It made it really difficult. He would say things and um, be halfway through them and then flip to something else. And one day he just said to me, did I tell you about Silka? And I went, no, who was Silka? He said, oh, she was this tiny little thing. And he would hold his hand up to about his waist. And he was not a big man. And he said, she was this tiny little thing and she saved my life. I went, okay, tell me more. But he didn't. You know, he didn't move on. But I kept coming back to Silka. And bit by bit, I got a little bit more about Silka and who she was in Birkenau. And then I've been lucky enough to watch Gita's show a tape that she made. And Gita talks about Silka. And I knew then I need to find out more about this girl. And then, then of course, I mention her. She's in my book. And hundreds and hundreds of people write to me saying, thank you for writing the book. Please tell me what happened to Silka. Well, I've been Googling Silka and I can't find anything about her. And uh, so I said to the publishers, I want to tell Silka's story. And they went, absolutely, start writing, girl. <laughs> so a 16-year-old girl, and I actually don't say in the book that's how old she was. She turned 16 in March and April. A month later, she found herself in Auschwitz. And from a small town, just like Lari and Gita in, in Slovakia, finds herself in Birkenau in July, like Gita, and the commandant there takes a fancy to her. And she survived her time in Auschwitz by being the sex slave of that commandant whenever he wanted. And yes, she got given a role in, in almost like a, a privileged position too because he did protect her, so not, again, a protected prisoner. But Gita was still in Auschwitz on the 27th of January, 1945, the day the Red Army came in and liberated the camp. She was one of the, the 7,500 people that remained. Most of them were just too, too sick and too weak for the, the Germans to have moved on. And the, the, the Red Army were there and uh, she was liberated and they were just put into the buildings in Auschwitz to give them shelter. But somebody there pointed the finger at her to the the Russians and accused her of sleeping with the enemy. She left Auschwitz 
after having been charged with prostituting herself to the enemy. She's now not quite 19, and she finds herself in a Siberian gulag, 50 miles from the Arctic Circle, one of the coldest places on Earth. Sentenced to 15 years. She served 10. Um, I have her story. I have her story from people back in Slovakia who knew her after she survived and have been able to tell me. And it's an amazing story of courage and survival of once again this tenacious, willful, stubborn young girl who would not give in. It's also a story of love. And um, I bring the same elements as the tattooist because she was working in the hospital in the Gulag where she was um, imprisoned. It's called Volkuta. And she got a job working in the hospital there and was trained as a nurse. By trained, I mean, you know, a doctor said to her, yeah, yeah, let's train you as a nurse and look, this is what you do. Nothing formal. And um, one of the prisoners who the, the doctors had given up help on, hope on, she ended up saving his life. She said, no, let me, let me help him. And they just said, yeah, whatever. And, uh, and did save his life, or he was credited with saving his life, and uh, the two of them got together after they were both released, and they lived for the next 50 years together, happily married in Slovakia. And I've even sat in the very apartment that Silke and Ivan lived in for 50 years and spoken to their neighbours, and just so, so delighted to be able to tell a story of this young girl, this young woman. Yeah, I mean... Her survival. I, I have goosebumps just thinking about it. I cannot wait to read that. And, um, look, I, I thank you for telling these stories. I mean, they're extremely important and extremely beautiful. So I, I'm glad that uh, you've taken on that responsibility. Yeah, look, there's, um, there's been many stories written about the Holocaust, of course, many, and, uh, and hopefully there'll be many, many more, please. There's not too many written from a personal point of view, from what I can find, about surviving in a gulag and were written in English anyway. There are, of course, uh, fiction, uh, non-fiction books about them and, uh, the, and the facts of them, but um, this is a story of, uh, of one non-Russian survivor from, from a gulag, and uh, all those weren't nice places either. Yeah, for sure. And we definitely cannot wait for that second book. And something I just... October. October October 4th we'll put it in the diary <laughs> and something that we we've wondered is just in your field you, you know the the book is obviously it's, it's an you know an international bestseller it's everywhere we go we see it everybody's talking about it if you could go back in time and give yourself some advice yeah look, look I'm just digressing here a little bit I was actually in a boutique buying some clothes just yesterday and uh, there was a woman about my age in there and um, I'd been talking to the shop assistant and talking about the book and this other woman came in and she sort of said, hey, this person there, she, she wrote this book and this woman about my age, she said, you know, I'm thinking about writing a book and I went, good, do it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, look, it really comes down to, you know, Bloody's attitude to things too with just, just do it and yes, it's not, you're not going to do it overnight and look, I met Lully in 2003 and it's now 2019 but I never gave up and I guess that's what it comes down to uh, you want something and you want it bad enough you, you just keep persevering 
and all of a sudden it then becomes the, the thing in your life that you now have to concentrate on because life will get in the way it's just the way it is um, yeah initially it was of course my three children now it's my four grandchildren but um, yeah and keep practice it's all about practice too none of us I mean, you think about whatever you do for, for your living and for talking for me. You didn't get to the level of expertise overnight. You just didn't do it. No lawyer or doctor or engineer um, gets to know their craft overnight. You have to work at it, guys. It ain't easy, but it's got it's worth it. Something that you said there, it reminds me of a commencement speech, which is famous. It's by Neil Gaiman. And it's called Make Beautiful Art. And and in here he talks about, as you said, about sticking through it and there's going to be bad times. But all those bad times, they lead up to to, to this masterpiece. And you have no doubt yeah. created an absolute masterpiece and one which is going to have enormous historical connotations. And this is why it's so popular now. I have trouble processing that. Um, I'm sitting in my um, home here in Melbourne I'll go down to the shops later on have a chat to whoever I do down there and it's to to me um, I'm just the lucky bucker that got to meet him and uh, the success of the book somehow or rather I don't quite still yet associate that with success for me Mm. it's not about me it may be my book but in this case it's not my story so, uh, yeah, I'm a little bit sort of at odds, I think, with people who create works of fiction who then get to own the story. I don't own the story. I'm, I've just told it. Beautiful humility. Um, on the show, we're obviously enormous proponents of books and the impact they have. Um, we've talked about the impact this book has had on other people, but what we wanted to ask you is, are there any books that have influenced you in your life? there has to be and there is and um, look, my reading varies incredibly for okay what do I want to do just zone out and get that sort of book you're going to be reading on a, on a plane and I'm spending a lot of time on planes right now and trust me I do not read anything too heavy I'm reaching for a David Baldacci or a Lee Child um, to escape it there uh, once again and why I was attracted to telling the story too is I've always been attracted to stories that had an element of reality to them or were based on a true event because to me uh, life is way more interesting than, than fiction fiction you escape with you learn from reading about uh, other people and how they have uh, created yeah, lives in all kinds of different areas and um to me, of course, having been associated with working in a hospital, I've always been drawn to wanting to, to know how people survive and get on after having suffered the kind of trauma and tragedy that comes from, be it an accident or ill health. And uh, you will learn so much amazing attributes and, and ways of dealing with your own life by looking how others have lived theirs. And... Um, yeah, so look, I tend to reach mostly for, in some ways, yeah, those very things I didn't write, which are memoirs and biographies. Could you give us any examples of ones which, or, or books which you've recommended, because our audience absolutely love these? 
Uh, you know, you've got, you can't go past, of course, any, even when I, I imagine people still do at school, and, and it was a long time since I was there, that um, Anne Frank's diary, you read that and, and you never forget it. Uh, it's as simple as that. Um, but to me, look, I'm just sitting here and I'm having a quick glance around my bookcase here of trying to, you said, where are they? There's so many of the things that they should be jumping out at me. Um, <laughs> yeah, we can uh, see there's, there's an absolute abundance of books in the background. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, you've put me on the spot here, and maybe it's because I've been awake five minutes. Um, <laughs> there are so many of these books here, they are, they are not um, works of fiction. Ah. But, um, yeah, look, go to those shelves that say non-fiction. Go to those shelves in your bookshop that say memoir or biography. Just pick it off, have a look at it, and see if there's anything on that back cover that appeals to you. One thing jumps out at you, then buy the book. And, um, oh, hey, by the way, can you go to the fiction shelf as well? Because that's where mine is. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Um, you know, the, Heather, we can't thank you enough for your time. And our last question today is going to be, uh, if you could distill all the lessons, experience you've gained out throughout your life, your experiences with Lully and all the things which have happened since you've wrote the book into a short but impactful message, what would that message be? Shut your mouth and listen because you learn from listening to other people. Um, and, yeah, and look, I, I had to do that where I worked for, say, 20-odd oh, years. And, yeah, yeah just, just take the time to listen and, and listen to people who you may not necessarily think that you have anything in common with because you don't have to have anything in common. Life need not be complicated. In fact, it's better if you simplify it. That's amazing. Heather, we cannot thank you enough. My pleasure, guys. It's been a delight.